Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a podcast about board games and not much else. With you, as always, is me, your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Mike Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. I'm very glad to hear that. I would just like to say to all the listeners who very kindly reached out and expressed their sympathy to me in my hour of need over the course of the past couple of weeks, it is greatly appreciated. A number of people were appropriately, while recognizing that walking away uninjured is the most important part, were very sympathetic about the loss of my beloved automobile, and this is to be greatly appreciated. A number of people reached out with their own tales of woe uh, so that we could all commiserate over our own um, automotive misadventures, shall we say. Rest assured, I'm doing much better now. I am in the appropriate headspace to talk about board games, and so all thoughts of personal tragedy are now buried under my completely impenetrable armor of privilege, as is normally the case. So it's all sunshine and consumerism from here on out. Can we talk about board games now? Like we are going to talk about board games now, Walker. I apologize for this 15-second digression during which you must have felt like you've aged 100 years. We are going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Eurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And we are going to talk about our topic of the week, which is worker placement, in which we will probably be unable to come to consensus about what that actually is. But at least in that sense, we will be mirroring the rest of the internet. Anyway, I don't want to... That's so true. I don't want to prejudge the rest of the segment, but I, I have a, a grim suspicion that that is what is going to uh, shake out. So, with that in mind, our Aurus is The Voyages of Marco Polo. Yes, and number two is already out in stores now, and we're looking forward, I'm looking forward to trying that out. It looks very much similar. Have you read the rule book yet? I have. We have not yet played it, but we have a copy. We have access to a copy. It's only available in German at the moment. The English version hasn't come out yet, but it's language independent, and the rules are already available. So... It, its retail availability is a little bit spotty. It looks... Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. We both love The Voyages of Marco Polo. For my money, it's the best of the uh, games of those coterie of Italian designers. It was designed by Simone Luciani and Daniel Tashini. You probably prefer Tashini's work, Teo Tawakin, probably. But we both love what they do, what they do with dice. Well, it's a, it's a toss-up in any way. And of their, of their work, we definitely like that better than things like Grand Austria Hotel, which I wasn't a huge fan of, and a number of their other uh, stuff. I prefer to Tzolkin as well. Anyway, they're very, very accomplished designers, and we think that Voyages of Marco Polo is, their, is, is so far arguably their best output. The second one, the reason why I'm concerned is because it looks a lot less tight than Voyages of Marco Polo was. Not in the sense of scoring. It hasn't transformed the, the beauty of the game into a point salad experience. But it looks like traveling is a lot easier, for example. The costs seem to have been smoothed out a little bit. One of the things that I really liked about the Voyages of Marco Polo was it was very expensive to get anything done. And so it was a challenge, a pleasing, tense challenge, to accomplish any of your medium to long-term goals. Not in a punishing way, but just in a sort of challenging way. And Marco Polo 2 looks a little bit less tight. It's also the case, I just have to comment, that they've they've done a very bad job of giving you guidance about how to integrate any of the content of Marco Polo 1 into Marco Polo 2. There's this brief paragraph in the, at the end of the rulebook saying, eh, here are the things you might want to include. And and as far as the, the extra characters, because a lot of the interest of Marco Polo is, is the incredibly powerful special characters, is, the guidance is just, eh, include whatever you want. Even though some of the additional characters are manifestly impossible to port in, and so a little bit of a description or at least a little bit of editorial guidance would have been appreciated. So, All right. Well, that being said, let's talk about the other expansion, Agents of Venice. Would you play Marco Polo without this expansion? Absolutely. It's Venice actually is one of the ways in which the base Marco Polo becomes less loose. Uh, sorry. 
more loose, less tight. Things yeah. get a little bit easier. Yeah, you get more resources, easier to travel. Yeah. But you do get more characters, so more fancy stuff to do. And there's also a mini, mini expansion that gives you more characters as well. I'm looking forward to seeing, because there's a new resource, Gumdrops, that should be interesting. He's referring to Jade. Uh, Walker, actually Walker's best work in terms of identifying resources by other, other names is in the Voyages of Marco Polo. If you've ever had the pleasure of playing uh, Marco Polo with him, you'll know that he does not refer to, for example, Silk. It is instead Lumpy Space Princesses, and there are many more uh, charming ones. So. so that is our take on what we reviewed last year, Marco Polo, The Voyages of... Marco Polo, comma, Voyages of, period. (laughs) Mark, what did you play this week? I got to play more of The Menace Among Us. I commented that my early plays were very promising, and I was hoping to expand my experience of it by finally playing as a good guy. The Menace Among Us is another attempt to do sort of kind of almost a Battlestar Galactica-type thing, where you're playing cards face down into a queue, and good and bad things happen, and then you try to figure out who did the bad stuff. And I'd always been the bad guy in The Menace Among Us, and I wanted to see what it was like being the good guy. And in some ways, actually, it's more interesting playing as uh, a, a good, quote-unquote, loyal person because the bad guys have a very simple victory condition, which is to say ruin everyone's day. Everybody dies, bad guys win. The good guys, on the other hand, have fascinating victory conditions that really constrain them because in order for them to win, the good guys have to collectively succeed. And in addition, they have to do something else. And sometimes this something else is downright vicious. One of them is you only win if the good guys win and someone else is dead, which sometimes you can get that done without looking suspicious and sometimes you can't. Anyhow, I've now played The Menace Among Us four times and the only thing that I'm now curious about is how flexible it is with respect to player count because each time I've played has been with seven or eight and at that number, The Menace Among Us is great. I really, I can now recommend it unreservedly. The playtime is excellent. We're talking about 45 minutes, which is really what you want in a game where somebody can be marginalized about 30 minutes in or even killed. And so that the pacing is great. The tension is great. The, the mechanisms get out of your way. It's very simple. Things move at a good clip. There are relatively tough trade-offs and, and it, it does exactly what it wants to. And there are moments of interesting tension and suspicion. What I'm curious about is how it feels like when you're playing with four or five. I suspect it'll be pretty bad. And I'd want to try it with experienced players, but I'm nonetheless very, very curious. I have to say that this is by far my favorite game ever put out by Smirk and Dagger. This is a company that's done things that I've wanted to like in the past. I've had some people I respect really like Cutthroat Caverns, but it wasn't really for me. I wanted to like Nevermore, the drafting game, but it didn't quite come together in a way that I, I, I really appreciated. But The Menace Among Us, I think, is a real winner. I love me social deduction games. I large I love large number games where there's just enough mechanical grist to get you through what's going on, and you can factor, factor out the signal from the noise. And although it is very much the case, as reported elsewhere, that the setup and teardown can be a little bit obnoxious because you have to build very specific decks, there's payoff for that. Everybody's deck is very, very different. I'm eager to show it to you, Walker, to see if this is finally the large number social deduction game that will cause you to actually play rather than just completely clam up and refuse to engage. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) Are you at all willing to give it a shot? I am, for sure, 100%. It sounds very interesting. (laughs) Anyway, that was the Menace Among Us. Oh, yeah, one final note. I wanted to to really stress this because sometimes 
we, especially me as a jaded gamer, I tend to gloss over artwork unless I find it problematic. More on that later. But the last session really saw us leaning into the sort of thematic evocations offered by the artwork. I was the cabin boy, and my character portrait was just this absurdly enthusiastic young lad surrounded by a whole bunch of grizzled aliens that looked like they had no Fs left to give. And the names are really funny, all the alien races are super evocative, the pictures are really cool, and so the captain and I got into a really, really interesting sort of social dynamic, whereby I was just boosting everybody and being being super happy-go-lucky, and the captain's like, ugh, kid, I tell you, it's all downhill from here. Because the captain's the one who can shoot people. The captain can just shoot people in the face, that's their special power. And I could copy someone's special ability. As the cabin boy, I could, I could, if somebody used a special ability, I could copy it later on in the round. And about halfway through the game, as the betrayal started mounting up, I became the jaded cabin boy. I, I was, I, I had ran out of all my Fs to give, and the captain's like, you've got command potential, boy. And so we just <laughs> got into this lovely dynamic. And again, it was largely because of this incredibly charming character art. So it, it, it encourages you to give it a little bit of extra role play, which is very nice. And as I say, I've been having a blast with The Menace Among Us, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing how badly it suffers with small player counts. So we'll see. We'll see. We got to try Wayfinders. It's this game that came up suddenly. It's a worker placement game. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's a worker placement game. Maybe. Yeah. Well, in my opinion, (laughs) air quotes, uh, it's by Pentasaurus Games, by a a name that I will completely obliterate now, Thomas Desjardins Le Prince. Uh, No. Thomas Dagenet L'Espérance. Oh, there you go. Hey, I, I, I thought I got pretty close. Cool. <laughs> anyway, long story short, it's uh, it's a worker placement game where, you know, it has this fantastic map. I love the artwork. Very, very minimalistic. You're flying this plane around. You're putting down hangars. You're trying to create this scoring engine. But that's all the window dressing. I feel that the the, the main part of the game is deciding when to bring your workers back and to get the resources you need to do that. That that's the interesting part of the game, anyway. The the most compelling and the most thing that you know you can concentrate on and have fun with. So what you're doing is you're putting one to five workers out, or or you're bringing them back whenever you like, collecting resources and using those resources, like I said, to you know make an engine. That's pretty well Wayfinders. What do you think, Mark? I really liked the element of collecting resources with a couple of caveats. What I didn't like was what you actually do with them. The actual spending of the resources, it's very much the sort of, well, for this place you need two greens, a yellow, and a purple. And if you don't have any of those, well then, best of luck. And I'm willing to cut some slack for that, particularly in Catan-style games, where there's a specific set of fixed recipes and you can internalize it very easily in, in, in that part. But where everything has a different, unique set of costs, I tend to lose my patience a little bit. And I, I don't know what it is. This is, per, this is purely a personal thing. If you've got five different colors of resources and everything costs a different specific combination of them, I find that a little bit irksome, especially in the context of a game that otherwise so simple. I also didn't really think that the whole issue of the push your luck element, I don't think it paid off as well as it could. You described it very early on when explaining the game as a push your luck game, essentially. And I didn't believe you at the time, but you're exactly right because you queue up these, <clears throat> let's call them workers. And you, when you pull them back, you take the topmost resources. But sometimes you put a worker there because you don't want the topmost resource. You want the second topmost resource. So you have to wait and play chicken and hope that somebody else pulls the top one before you get the second one. That part was neat. That was the definitely my favorite part of the game. The problem is, number one, the queue of resources is only three deep. And sometimes, even in a three-player game, we would have many more than three workers there. So what's what exactly is going on? You're just hoping for the right pull from the bag. 
And on top of that, sometimes the resource that you need isn't anywhere on any of the queues anyway, because again, the requirements are so specific. That and the scoring I found relatively uninspired. So I, I liked some of the bits. I thought they were cute and clever, but the actual way you score points, the way you make progress in the game, didn't do anything for me. And this is the second design by uh, Thomas Dachenel Esperance that I, hasn't really clicked for me. The other one being Decrypto, but we don't get to talk about Decrypto anymore. The internet is decreed. And it was cute and inoffensive, but I just wish it leveraged that resource collection element a little bit better. True. I, I, I'm just, I got out of what I wanted. I read the rules before I bought it. I, I knew exactly what it was going to be. A nice, light worker placement game with this push your luck, and it, and it, and it panned out the way I wanted it to, so I was happy. And that was, Way, that was Wayfinders by Pandasaurus Games. Played Paranormal Detectives. Paranormal Detectives is yet another game of the sort of let us solve a mystery together kind of thing, a la Mysterium or even a la Obscurio. However, this one is not cooperative. It is a competitive experience. One person has the scenario, and their job is to help to try to guide somebody to solve it. They don't care who solves it. They just want someone to solve it. And your job as, uh, as the other player is to figure out the puzzle before anybody else does. And there, I have a couple of problems with Paranormal Detectives. I wanted to like it, and some of it was enjoyable, but let's start with the scenarios, because that is one of the big strengths of Paranormal Detectives. First of all, Walker, let me ask you a question. When playing Deception, Murder, in Hong Kong, a game we both adore, have you ever encountered a situation where the clue giver started giving strange clues because of, a, of an elaborate narrative that they've built in their head? No. Okay. I've encountered this a number of times, actually, because in, in Deception, what happens is a murderer indicates nothing more than a murder weapon and a piece of evidence left at the scene. And I've several times encountered a forensic investigator, the person giving the clues, they've, they've made a story based on the elements there in order to make the details stand, uh, hang together in their head. And this is perfectly understandable, and I'm very sympathetic to that. But as a result, sometimes their clues rested on these elements of the story rather than the details of the cards. That's only in their heads. That's only in their heads. But again, we nat look, we naturally form narrative, we naturally connect these things together, and they wanted to make it like sort of a murder mystery rather than just a function of cluing into specific data points independent of any sort of broader story. So I'm sympath sympathetic to that, even though it's bad play. In Paranormal Detectives, that's exactly what you're doing, though. There is a narrative. You are given a specific story, and your job is to solve as the detectives to, to solve the who, what, when, where, and why. But these are not independent, free-floating data points. They are part of a story. That part was great, except when it wasn't. Because the second narrative that we were given, there's about there's a fair number in the box. The first one we had was fine. The second one we had was so convoluted, it was the game trying to force a set of answers out of a story that didn't make any sense. Even if I had witnessed the story in question, I don't know that I could have answered the, the questions the way the game wanted me to. It felt contrived, it felt arbitrary, and it felt artificial. Afterwards, nobody at the table thought it was satisfying. Somebody made a wrong guess, the person whose job it was to get us to solve the mystery said, you've basically got it. And then they revealed the story and we all looked at the story and said, no, you didn't answer the questions right at all because the game said that the right way to answer the questions was stupid. So that was one problem we had. There's some, there are also issues with turn order. There's also some issues with personal space because the clue, the way clues are given, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. You can draw a drawing with string. You can spell something out in a Ouija board type arrangement. You can 
use uh, sliders to indicate something. You can mouth words. You can pantomime something. And one of them is drawing a picture on somebody's back. And what's interesting about these different things is there's an interesting interplay between how clear the information is and how public the information is. Because sometimes as a player, you get the clue and nobody else does. For example, when someone's drawing on your back. But I would be nervous personally drawing on a stranger's back in with my finger, right? Am, am I alone in that? Not at all. And I can easily imagine lots of other people not wanting to be touched in situations like that. And that's perfectly legit. Now, the game accommodates for this. It's not like it says you have to play this way. You can swap out those cards and, and get around it. But eh, minor problem. I've been remiss in the past for not mentioning this because, let me let me clarify, one way in which it is problematic in exactly the same way that the uh, Eastern European version of Mysterium is, this is one way in which the French slash American version of Mysterium is manifestly superior, and I haven't given credit in the past. And that is, in the American-French version of Mysterium, there are no incredibly stereotypical, lazy, and borderline racist depiction of Roma. You know, the standard uh, red headscarf, hoop earrings, dark-haired woman with, with red lipstick who reads cards. Paranormal investigators, uh, paranormal, paranormal detectives, leans hard into this stereotype for one of the characters. And quite frankly, the moment I saw it, I was less than enthused with the game. And then I went back and I ch- uh, checked the, the, the version of Mysterium that I had these three European ones. It does the same thing. Not as bad. Like, that character is just sitting there as opposed to doing the weird sort of long fingernail, heavily uh, ringed fingers, looking at, at, at tarot cards. And uh, I, I'm sick to death of it. Artists should stop doing it. It's a tired, lazy, racist trope uh, against the marginalized people. So Paranormal Detectives was interesting, but I don't think it really leveraged its ability to craft narrative very well, both by virtue of some of the turn order problems and the victory conditions were a bit wonky, and the fact that some of the narratives were unsatisfying. But if you are, if you really want like this format, and you love Obscurio, you love Mystery, you love all that stuff, and you want a competitive version, Paranormal Detectives might be something worth trying, even though it really didn't do anything for me. All right, I got to try the new Baron Park expansion, Mark. Very excited. It Just like Wayfinders, exactly what I want. I read the rules ahead of time before I even bought it, so I knew how I was going to play, and it played just like I thought. You have these new, really cool monorails. Three-dimensional makes the pop game pop out and look very interesting and, and cool. These uh, large new puzzle pieces where you give up, like, two other pieces, either before or the end of your turn, to get these giant things that cover up uh, much bigger pieces of your board. And because of that... Uh, you now have a fifth board that you have to fill. New achievement cards. All of it very good. Glad I got it. But it did bring up some some new, not new problems, but problems I didn't really think of before. Is that the setup for Baron Park is ridiculous for what you get out of Baron Park. Ridiculous is a strong word. There's a fair bit of it, but... Just just way I remember I just the game we just set up now and then we had our, another gaming night where I helped a group I, I didn't play myself but I helped them set up and it just reinforced the, that that there's like four different piles that you have to put in 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 sequence after you look up which ones which one of those tiles that you need to use in in that particular player count right because there's certain oh ones you right use. okay i forgot so about not that only detail. Yes, you have you're to right. put them in the right order but you have to get the right ones out then there's all the statues and then there's this. There's just seems to be an awful lot now that you're adding the monorails as well and all these other things. It just seemed like for what you get out of Baron Park, which is not is not as heavy as a you know as a as the setup shows that it should be, in my opinion. But other than that, I'm glad I got the expansion and I'm looking forward to playing it more. But on a scale of ten to ten, how awesome do the monorails look? Ten. 
I'm very much looking forward to giving it a try. I and like and the, the, the mechanic of placing them, like they can't go in a straight line. They can only go on green things. They have to be like two, two things apart. And like, it really adds that element of trying to plan ahead. Like before it's like, Oh, I'll just take that piece. It'll go there. That piece, you know, you, you'll figure it as you go. But yep. once you get the monorails out, you can't just do that. You have to like, you know, I want a really cool monorail system. So I have to make sure I get this right. Lovely. So I've been playing more modern art. Again, a very generous listener sent me a copy of the new beautiful Cool Mini or Not version. Uh, well, Simon, I should say, because there are no minis involved. Other than the gavel. There's a mini gavel. There you go. That's a miniature. There you go. The new Cool Mini or Not version of modern art with actual artists and beautiful cards. I think, honestly, here's why I think I'm, I'm starting to appreciate modern art before. Because I played modern art back when I was first getting into the hobby, and I was enamored with Raw, and I uh, really liked Medici, and I was playing all these other Reiner Knizia auction games. Modern art is, in very in a very real way, different from all of those other Knizia auction games because it's really a game about market manipulation. It matters who is selling and who is buying. It's not just a function of how much a painting is worth. It's about who, who you're paying to buy that painting. And... It's about subtly encouraging the market to go in ways you want it to go based on what's in your hand or based on what your portfolio is. And I really needed – I think I, I benefited from having played QE before pl- returning to modern art because QE is a game also about market manipulation. It's not just about buying all the tiles you want. It's about knowing where the market's going to go and reacting to a superheating market or, or what have you. And modern art's very much the same way but with more detail and grit and texture and playing the other players. And I really do think I'm now kind of in a pro- – like, all these years in the hobby, I think I'm only now finally ready to appreciate modern art the way that it deserves to appreciate it. It's still not my favorite Kinsey auction game, but that's mostly because uh, of my enthusiasm for Raw. And very much like I think we're about to say later on, you can be your you know fifth or sixth favorite Kinsey auction game, and it's still brilliant. It's still a work of utter genius. That's just the nature of Kinsey's catalog. So I really am enjoying my, my further plays of modern art, and it's it's enjoying a bit of a resurgence in, in uh, the local group. So more plays to follow. Nice. Mark, I had a completely new and exciting board game experience this week. I played my very first solo game. Really? Very excited. And it was very fun. I got Guy Project out. We had like a little solo thread in the forums that went huge. And a lot of people talked about how the Guy Project solo variation or variant was good. So I thought, you know, now's the time to try it. It's it's an Atoma deck, right? From Atoma Factory? It is. 100%. And it just, it tells you what action that, uh, it's a, it turns into a two player game. So it doesn't you know, totally make a, it's not a totally different experience. Uh, uh, your play is exactly what it would be in a normal game. So it doesn't make, you know, this whole different type of solo thing, but, uh, the other side just does whatever action that, you know, comes up on the card, regardless of, you know, resources, you don't have to track resources. You don't have to do any of that stuff. It says, okay, they're doing this action. And then it goes through a bunch of huge rules about how they would do that action, but it all just breaks down to, the obvious common sense place they would put that, you know, it's like, what about where it builds buildings? That's what I mean. It's like, they build a mine now and it's like, it's going to go where they would normally put it. It's like, they want to put it close to you. They want to put it on a planet that's easy to, 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 uh, terraform. Right. And, you know, they have this, you know, 10 page, not 10 pages, but they have this, all these examples and, you know, how to do it and count clockwise and back and forth. But, you know, it all breaks down to something easy. And if you've but played. But you found it manageable. You... Yeah. If you've played the game before, you don't need to do all that stuff. It's like, okay, that's the planet they put it on. You put it on. It's it's nice. I see. I see. What it did sort of point out, I'm wondering with all these different solo variants, if it's going to, uh, how did I want to word this? It was, you know, is it going to 
is it going to show a game's flaws? Like if right. if a solo variant is so simple to do, does it mean the game plays itself already? I hear you. You know what I mean? If all it takes is this deck, like for Gaia Project, I sort of you know worded it. Well, you don't you know you're not tracking resources. You're doing these actions for free. So that that part obviously is not the same. But these other games were just where you know it takes control of a of a person and and does a great job without you know any any real thought, then I'm wondering if it's going to, you know, show the weaknesses of games. Obviously, it's easier to make an Atoma for a system that doesn't have a whole lot of quality substantive player interaction at that point. And in Gaia Project, honestly, and this was one of my criticisms of the game back when we reviewed it, honestly, I felt that despite the fact that it's mechanically very satisfying and there's a lot of meaty stuff going on, at the end of the day, you're just plopping down buildings. That's all that you're really doing. It's all in service of just putting out buildings. And so, absolutely, Gaia Project, independently of the quality of the player interaction involved, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's it's less than good. If you strip out all that mechanical complexity on the back end and you're just plopping out buildings automatically by some schema, it seems like one of the, you know, like a meaty Euro game that lends itself very well to, to, to solo play. Whether that reveals to you that Gaia Project is less than what you thought it was, maybe, maybe not. But I do agree with you that sometimes in the playing of the game solo, you realize that there's less going on there. I, I've i talked about solo gaming before. I I've, There's an editorial up on the, 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 the Patreon feed for how I approach solo gaming. For me, it's a very, very particular thing. And sometimes I just find myself playing, uh, you know, once you're managing everything, sometimes the load starts to outweigh your enjoyment about actually playing the game. But I'm very glad that you had a good experience with it. Nice. Played more Wavelength. Wavelength is the party game by Alex Haig, Justin Vickers, and Wolfgang Varsh. And again, the goal of the game, on the part of the designers, was to make you feel like you're telepathic and make you really feel like you and your teammates really deeply understand each other on a fundamental level. And it is amazing how much, at its best, the game encourages that. There was one clue I gave where I heard my teammate spontaneously just articulate with incredible detail my precise rationale for why I gave that clue. Now, he was outvoted by the other teammates. And then then quite promptly, the rest of his teammates, you know, downvoted him and and went the totally different direction. But the moment was had. (laughs) And it leads to some great moments of cleverness. My, My favorite clue from the past playing was to... As a reminder, the way the game works is your job is to clue your team to identifying a certain point on uh, a spectrum from A to B. And and one of the, my favorite clue from the last game we played, and I, I'd very much like to hear your thoughts on the game, was the clue, the clue giver's uh, scale was from sandwich to not a sandwich. And of course, the internet has been roiling with ongoing debates about what is a sandwich and what isn't a sandwich for a long time, usually in the context of a hot dog. But the clue that the person gave was hamburger. And the issue was, and I thought it was a perfect clue. I thought it was great because sure enough, what they wanted to clue someone in was, yes, definitely a sandwich, but not really all the way sandwich. The the I, I, Dewey and I actually got into a very, very heated argument where I got rather condescending, where I, I, I said, well, look, it doesn't belong all the way towards the sandwich, sandwich end of the spectrum. And he said, what are you talking about? Of course it's a sandwich. I'm like, yes, I know it's a sandwich. I'm not saying it's not a sandwich, but it's not the paradigmatic sandwich. If you look at a dictionary under the entry for sandwich, you're not going to find a picture of a hamburger. To which he responded, but it's a sandwich. Anyway, it was an unilluminating exchange. Uh, but the point of the clue was to get us 
pretty far along the sandwich end, but not all the way. I thought it was brilliant. Anyway, I thought it was a great clue. Moments like that are what Wavelength is really, really good at delivering. What did you think of Wavelength for? I love Wavelength. I'm just going to compare it to code names. I think it's just a little more accessible because the the clue giver in code names, his job is a little more in-depth. You know, not that it's huge in code names, but... Well, it's daunting. It is daunting, like especially for new players, right? You're trying to, you know you know, sort of do this, you know, wave worm and to try to get, you know, four or five words under one clue. And if you haven't done anything like that before, it is hugely daunting where in this case, it is just a perspective and it's one word that you're trying to, you know, throw on this, you know, degree of good or bad or hot or cold or overrated movie to underrated movie. Exactly. Sandwich to not a sandwich. Wet to wet to dry. Well, there was submarines, there was you know. also oh geez that was such a terrible clue. But anyway, there was forgivable to unforgivable. Where again we discovered that apparently people think that shoplifting is fine. Given that this was this discussion was happening in the basement of a game store, I can only imagine what the uh, what what onlookers thought of that. Anyhow, yeah, and I think and I think there is there is room for it to be very clever. Much like code names, right? Not only in in the very interesting clue that you can give, but into coming up with with your own uh, questions or your own, you know, uh, why can't I think? I'm thinking. I know the exact word you're thinking of too. The, your own your own question as to you know what way you want to go left or right. And I'm looking forward to playing it more. I'm just wondering. My only thing was it was the the discussion about the clue is almost too good and makes the game too long. You know what I mean? Really? Yeah, I, I I find that, you know, like the funny debates and that is is great. I'd rather yes. I'd rather that go on long, but for the weight of the game and for it to take up so much time on a on a on a game night might be too much. I'm wondering that's why I was talking about earlier about, you know, changing its setting. I'm wondering if it'll almost be more relaxing in in a bar type situation where you're not I'm wondering if that's why I wanted to change its location and change its sort of, you know, that's rollout. If anything, I want the game to be longer than it is. But then we well, usually play, I mean. th- play I two do, games back to back. I do want it to be longer than it is, but for its weight, you know what I mean? For sure. You know, for it to take up that much time on a, on a game night for people who maybe that's their only night and they want to have something something with a little bit more meat on it for a game like that to take up so much time might be frustrating for them. I don't know. I... I I confess I don't really have a good sense of how long it took. I thought it was only about 20 minutes, but maybe it was longer. I'll pay attention next time. No problem. All right. Mark and I got to play a game called Babylonia, and it's uh, produced by Ludo, Lud, Ludonova. Ludonova. Lud, Ludonova. I, I think it's by some new, some new designer. I'm not sure what his name is, but it's a great <laughs> tile laying game. Tell the listeners who designed it, Walker. It's Reiner Knizia. <laughs> he designed this game, and I thought it was fantastic, but what game that he doesn't design is not fantastic. It's There's this, a lot of negatives. It's this huge grid system, and you have three different nobles you can place out, or, or farmers, and you're trying to create this snaking group of tiles so that when a city scores, you can trace a path back through all previously played tiles that you played. So if the city is certain symbols, all of the symbols of the path that you choose back, they all score. So you're trying to like create these giant pockets of tiles. So every time a city gets removed, you're going to score big points. And I just thought 
it, it was a great game with very simple rules. It's that that's the point I want to make about this game. It's yet another one that I will never have to take out the rule book for this game. You just put it out and you start playing quick setup and simple rules, much like almost all of his games. Yeah, you never have once you learn it once, you never have to bring out the rule book again. I found my second playing of Babylonia vastly more satisfying than the first. It's kind of the curse of Reiner Knizia tile-laying games. He's designed so many epic-making tile-laying games that they're inevitably going to be compared to ones he's done previously. This was definitely the fate of Blue Lagoon. Everyone always compares Blue Lagoon to Through the Desert. I think to an exaggerated extent, yes, you get sometimes the same feel. And Babylonia is currently being compared to kind of like Samurai meets Through the Desert. But that, I think, is a testament to the fact that in Babylonia, there are different things you can pursue. You care about surrounding things, and you also care about, as you say, building up these blobs of appropriate symbols. And you can mix and match those two different approaches, especially if you get blocked from pursuing one, you can then try to go and pursue the other. It feels strange. The scoring system is is strange in that there's kind of sort of an infrastructure involved. You're kind of sort of almost building an infrastructure in... Uh, Babylonia, which is very much unlike Renekinsky's other tiling game, so it does feel unique despite its its inevitable comparisons. I am interested in exploring it more. I agree with you that it's very promising, I, but I, I, I haven't really had a chance to solidify my thoughts on it. I, it's another I, game that I definitely wanted to time how long the game takes, because I think it was very quick. And, I think it was and, about 60 minutes with three and, players. And for what we get out of it for that 60 minutes, it's much like Calamella. Gave me that feel of, you know, huge decision space, tons of fun, all in a small time. I agree. I'm looking forward to, mo- to more. And that was Babylonia. That that leaves the, mo- the that only leaves Aristocracy. That's the other Reiner Tinsia tiling game released this year. I'm looking forward to giving that a shot. All right. And that was, and those were, and these are. <laughs> <laughs> these will be. The games we played last week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I was remiss in mentioning that the Scott Pilgrim Kickstarter was on. The Scott Pilgrim miniatures, the word Kickstarter was on. It ended, but you can late pledge now. I am not sure if I can, uh, because as some of you may know, I don't really have what's that thing money at the moment because of other uh, other concerns, but it does look awfully nice. And Erica Bioris is my new favorite desi- game designer, even though I haven't played anything she's ever done. So if you're at all curious about the Scott Pilgrim Miniatures game, you can still get it, even though the Kickstarter is over. That's all I've got to say. Uwe Rosenberg has another game. We love us some Uwe. He's going with a Canadian publisher for this one, Paper Plane Games. It's coming out March. It is called Fairy Trials. It's a one to two player game. The art looks amazing. It's going to be like fairies versus gnomes or some such thing. And you're building stuff with cards. I'm looking forward to trying it out. I like to try a smaller, a yeah, much smaller type Uwe Rosenberg game. So I'm looking forward to seeing how, what he does with a smaller, with a smaller footprint. So I tend to like his bigger games rather than smaller games. 100%. Just a heads up about something cool that a listener did. I mean, first of all, I think it's a cool thing that a listener does anytime they bother to listen to us. I think that's awesome. But people often ask, have we talked about this game? If if so, on what episode? Now, on my podcast app, I can just search the descriptions of all our episodes so I can just key it in and then let them know. But a better solution has been found for people who do not use my particular podcast app. A user in our guild by the name of Firedrake has made a website that just 
compiles automatically all the episode descriptions. So you can just do a text search from that website. I will include a, the URL to that website in the episode description. It's also in the guild under, I have a list that also has all of, uh, all the feature games, all the feature games that we've done and what episode they're in. And at the very top of that page, I've put the link to that website as well. I will merely note that this is the latest in a long line of amazing things that our listeners do because you are all very impressive, physically attractive, morally righteous, wise people with excellent, excellent Mark, taste. It's like every time I think of our listeners, Marks, my, my eyes tear up out of out of just pride. I just feel and, warm inside. And exactly. But I will note that we do not have a micro badge on Board Game Geek yet. A number of listeners have tried, uh, but uh, it hasn't really come together. I, I, you know, I would not mind a micro badge. This isn't really me asking people. I hate asking people to do stuff. We don't really ask our listeners to do much. Uh, like, subscribe, pound that subscribe button, blah, 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 and all that yeah, other nonsense. No. no, 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 we're not into that. But honestly, I, I, I would kind of like a micro badge. Mark, Car Wars. I know we really love Gaslands. But Car Wars 6th Edition by Steve Jackson Game is going to be coming to Kickstarter November 29th. I like the miniatures they're designing. They look very cool. I just, I've played Car Wars before, and honestly, it's it, it's just the proof of concept for Gaslands. Well, just, that's what is... I mean. I'm wondering, I'm hoping maybe with 6th Edition they go to something totally different. True. But but then again, Gaslands works so well. You know why? I don't know. We'll see. We'll I, see. We'll see. Because it gives you the feel that you want in this, you know, car combat game is what Gaslands does. Car Wars, I remember just being, you know, it was fine for its time because there's nothing else out there. So, you you know, you went through the pain and suffering that was Car Wars. But, you know, that's just me. Other people like it. I shouldn't really say pain and suffering because maybe lots of people very much enjoy yeah, Car Wars. Look, I'm with you. I found it pretty tedious. And the, the, the great virtue of Gaslands and most of your more modern tabletop designs is that they keep things moving. And there's an impetus towards action and there's an impetus towards development and cool stuff happening. All the abstractions in a game like Gaslands are precisely to keep things fast moving, whereas in Car Wars, very often the impulse was the opposite. No, 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 we need to model this. We need to make sure that this kind of sort of seems like how it might work in real life. So as a result, you end up measuring things like a radii and nonsense like that. But anyway, as you say, as you say we shouldn't prejudge. The 6th edition may have a more modern sensibility about it. We will see. Final note from me is Hollenspiel, the little designer that could, the very, very small niche outfit by Tom and Mary Russell, is having a big sale. And if you haven't already played Meltwater, if you haven't already tried an infamous traffic, then uh, or many of their other excellent little historical war games and non-historical war games... By all means, go check it out. I will note also that this is your last chance to get an infamous traffic by Hollenspiel because Tom and Mary Russell, well, Tom Russell wrote a very, very excellent editorial about why he decided to give up the rights to an infamous traffic. This is Cole Worley's design, one of his earliest designs in point of fact about the Opium Wars. Fascinating game. I don't think it quite works, but it's a little too fragile. But fascinating design, like many things out of, out of Hollenspiel. And the rights were, were coming up, and uh, apparently Cole Worley said, look, if you want to keep the rights, go ahead. Uh, it's your best-selling title, even though Cole Worley now has his own publishing arm, and he probably would redesign it himself. And Tom said, no, you know, like, uh, you want it? Take it back. So this is, this, is, this is proof positive that if you want to lose money, you should go into game publishing, because this is, this is a man giving up opportunity to continue to make money hand over fist on this design. So if you, it will probably be out of print for a couple of years after this, so this is your last chance, and that's the Hollenspiel sale. Speaking of sales, Black Friday's coming up, so don't forget to check around for great deals. 
And by check around for great deals, you mean trample an elderly woman so to get a to get twenty dollars off a television? Damn straight. Yeah, absolutely. Walker, do you want to tell us what's happening with Reavers of Midgard? Reavers of Midgard. Yes, we pledged for that so we could tell you about it, but we can't. But we could buy it from the store because stores have it, but kicks my Kickstarter backers in Canada don't have it because of game trays, Mark. Apparently, the game trays, trademark, uh, didn't come to the high quality that they thought they would, so they held our games up until the game trays were replaced, and then now then they're going to send them. So who knows when we'll be able to tell you about Reavers of Midgard by Grey Fox Games. This has been a very bad season for Canadian fulfillment. Yes. There have been months-long discrepancies between Americans getting their copies and Canadians getting their copies. Well, just on a quick note, it's the Butterfly game that we've been talking about, Papillon. It was, they talked about fulfillment. They said, oh, people in the U.S., you're getting your copies today. Some people have already got their copies. Oh, by the way, Canada, we we decided that we, we'll put yours on the boat this week in China, so you'll get yours in six to eight weeks from now. Yeah. And look, we're not saying that we don't understand the economic realities here. We're a larger country with a tenth the population. Of course, we are not going to get the same degree of attention that American consumers are. It's just deeply frustrating. I'm now in a position where there are some publishers I just won't support anymore because of how badly their fulfillment goes. And you always hear the same the same justification. Oh, no, it's just a couple people and they're as frustrated as everybody else. That's fine. I'm not judging them morally. I'm just saying that they are unable to perform the service to which I contract them in a reasonable way, so I will no longer frequent their businesses. That's just the way that it is. Yeah, and, and I'm not getting mad because, you know, we're not getting games. I have tons of games to play. I'm not, not, not you know, picking on these people or, you know, or voicing problems that I have on air because, you know, I have some sort of voice. It's it's just, you know, it's just frustrating, like you said. Well, I'm I'm now in the position where we live very, very close to the border, even closer than most Canadians do. And I can have games shipped to a, to an American address instead of a Canadian address. I don't think I am ever going to have can it rely on Canadian fulfillment ever again. I think from now on, every Kickstarter available, I'm just going to have shipped to, to, to my American address because this is ridiculous. It's hard to give people up-to-date information when we're six weeks behind. If we don't have up-to-the-minute information about 20-year-old games then the kids are going to... We're going to lose our street cred we, with the we, kids. We owe it to our listeners, Mark. And if we don't have street cred with the kids, we are nothing. Exactly. Mark, that is the news and why it really doesn't matter. On to the topic, which is worker placement games. First thing I'm going to start off with. What's a worker placement game, Walker? No, I'm not starting no? off with okay. that. Okay, fine. Starting off with so many game mechanisms being pushed to their limits and mutated and mashed together with other mechanisms... Is there, any, is there any point really in still trying to categorize game mechanisms and, and, and saying that a game is a certain type or shouldn't it be more that this game uses this mechanism rather than this game is this mechanism? Oh, well, at that point we're splitting hairs. Look, we're in the business walker of informing people through an audio medium what games are like and in an attempt to try to describe them. And no, let no, me no, finish. Not, let no, me finish. I, know, I won't let you finish. I'm not saying us in particular. I'm saying in general. Like this is just a feed into on Board Game Geek. Just recently they've come up with this, you know, huge new categorization yes. of, of you know, mechanisms and how to define them and making sure everything's in their own little box. But I'm just saying with all of these new designs coming out that are merging them together and, and mutating them and, and, and blurring the lines. And we've already seen how, you know, different people 
think mechanisms are different things. Is there any reason that we need to try to pigeonhole these things? Well, it's not okay. Basically, what you've what you've raised is a sort of skepticism about taxonomies, and I am very sympathetic because taxonomies can be used badly. Pigeonholing is never good, but just because you identify a game as belonging to a certain family or being characterized by a primary mechanism doesn't mean that you either have to equate the unequal or shave off its differences and lump everything together in in the same giant pot. One can trace a through line, just to pick two of the, 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 the somewhat early, very, very influential worker placement games. One can talk about the similarities between Kalos and Agricola without asserting that they're fundamentally the same games. And I think that one can reasonably organize things on a database like BoardGameGeek on these bases. So long as you are conscious of the taxonomy, the taxonomy doesn't have to become your master. All right. <laughs> This was your suggestion, by no, the way. I don't know why I, you're so grumpy. No, no, I'm not grumpy about it. I'm just saying. I'm just, I just bring up points, Mark. I don't. I don't think of it. I don't. You just throw stuff at the wall. Exactly. You don't care what sticks. I don't. I don't go one way or the other. I just bring up interesting points and and, and okay. get you. All right. Okay. My definition of worker placement games. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. Must Talk be to me. must be action drafting. Yes. Must use tokens of some kind to block actions from other players. This is. Do you? This is, no. What's that? Does it really? I mean, couldn't you theoretically have like? Because I was thinking about this in terms this of is, this is sorry. When I was thinking, sorry, I meant good worker placement games. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I, okay, but but I don't think it's important not to let the the, the form of the components blind you. Because have you played in the Shadow of the Emperor? No. Because I think in the Shadow of the Emperor is arguably a worker placement game by virtue of. The, but instead of using workers to block a space, what you do is you claim a card from an available display. And what you're doing there effectively, that they do this for, for for good reason, is it effectively gets the same kind of action drafting element you get out of a worker placement game. It's, it's but instead of putting a wooden pawn somewhere on a board, you're just taking a card out in front of you. Gotcha. Oh yeah. After we do, I'm going to do this definition. Okay. I just want to make sure. Sorry then, to interrupt. And then, and then we're going to talk about it. But then at the end, I've got this, I got a game that we're going to play. We're going to play, is it a worker placement game or not? I, oh, I boy. Okay. Is, be, is it going to be a lightning round? Yeah, Are we going to have sound it's, effects? It's going to be awesome. Right. Oh, great. So you're going to use some sort of tokens to block actions or workers, whatever. Right. right. Uh, you have to limit how many tokens pe- of these tokens people have, right? You have a certain ex- you know, certain number of workers. You know, there's a way to get more. A notion of figuring out what actions are most important to you this turn. Uh, how to best use your limited actions for this turn. I like it when there's a way to get more tokens, like more ways to get more actions, more workers. Okay, well, let's talk about that actually, because that's that's a big. Um, unless you want to keep going with. Well, the, I think the, this is the last. Okay, the last okay, one, go ahead. Right? I like when the way to get more tokens, where there's a point where you have to make a sub-optimal action or put your strategy on hold while you increase your number of workers or tokens. Okay, because here's the thing. This is actually, I, I think, a matter of, of, of difference of preferences. I prefer worker placement games where there's no ability to get more workers, or at least no ability for you to control that, because I find very often, and this is a sweeping generalization, mind you, but very often when you can get more workers, it takes on an outsized importance, and it becomes an overwhelming uh, a focus of the game. For example, one of my favorite worker placement games remains Agricola. I still love Agricola. I think it's aged very well. I think it's an excellent worker placement game. Even and it it it's it's it falls prey to many of the faults of worker placement games. We'll get to this later. But one of the biggest ways in which it falls prey to the faults of worker placement game is 
if you can get more family members, you desperately need to get more family members. And a lot of the game and a lot of the uh, player competition is driven by the fact that everyone is desperate to get more of them. The same is true in Stone Age, for what it's worth. Stone Age tried to elaborate this a little bit on the, the breeding hut or the nookie hut, as it is called by many people. But it's still very, very important. It's one of the best action spaces in the game. And I just like it when the game just says to you, either in a non-worker placement game like Hansa Teutonica, where getting more actions is not the overwhelming drive of the game. It can be balanced appropriately. Or, as in the case of games like Tribune, where you just can't do that. You just don't get any more workers ever. I just prefer that. Yeah, like Wayfinders or uh, Outlive. You, all, you know, you have your set number of workers. And yeah, so, so why, why do you like... I don't know. It's, it's just... it's just. I just like... You know, it's, it's just a strategy that I enjoy. Not that I ever, you know... I, it's, I was about to say, well, you, you, you talk But isn't about, it almost always the dominant strategy? It is. I was, while you were talking about it quickly, Caverna's the same way. 98% of the time, I hardly ever get the extra workers, and 98% of the time, I lose because <laughs> someone else has, <laughs> has the strategy where they have, you know, five, okay. a whole bunch more workers. But you did bring up another point, which was the fact that the Nookie Hut is a popular spot. And one of the. Are we talking about in real life or in Stone Age? Uh, both. Okay. All right. Um,. It's one of the most uh, hard, not hard things to do, but where problems happen in worker placement games is that a certain action space is obviously more powerful than others, right? You have to make sure that all of the spaces are very balanced or else your game is going to fall apart. Yeah, I've said before, and and I I meant it, very often you can end up with uh, lazy design in worker placement games in the very same way that you have lazy design in auction games. Because if you want to design a super generic Euro game, you don't have to display any kind of balancing amongst the different actions or any sense of nuance about how to introduce the resources, just auction them off. Just have people decide what they're worth and that'll be it. And in a way, this is perhaps stretching things in my, you know, being a bit hypocritical, stretching definitions for my own purposes. In a kind of way, sometimes worker placement feels like a bit of an auction because what you're doing is you're trying to decide how to leverage your limited resources to acquire these shared resources available to everyone else in that competition. Uh, Strozzi, for example, one of Reiner Knizia's auction games, felt a little bit like a hybrid of a worker placement game and an auction game because you only had three bids available to you. Two of the bids were one, and one of the bid was two, so it felt a little bit like a worker placement game. There was one game, though, that I I thought did a very, very, very good job of balancing a lot of these things, and that was a game called Leonardo da Vinci. This was published over 10 years ago. I don't know if you've ever played it. There have been dozens of games named after Leonardo da Vinci or things like that, but this was the worker placement game. I really liked the, the, the central worker placement element of it, and I haven't seen it repeated before. The way that it worked was you had your workers, and when you went to a spot, you had to decide how many workers to send there. You couldn't increase it later. You were just committed to sending that many, that many players there. And then, at the end of the round, after everyone had sent all the workers everywhere, the person who sent the most workers to a place got to activate that space first, and they got to activate it for free. And then who was in second place had a chance to activate it but by, you had to pay victory points in order to activate it. And this kept going down the line until the space had been activated a certain number of times. And so it, it was kind of like a combination of an auction and area majority and uh, worker placement all at the same time. I didn't think that the design came together very well, but that part I thought was really cool and it helped balance. It didn't completely obviate the problems of, say, turn order especially, but it helped obviate them a little bit because you could just commit and go there. I was going to say that's my very next point. It makes turn order a thing. Worker placement games, it really emphasizes uh, first player and turn order. So you got to make sure you, you know, in Kalis, they do a great job. Other games, not so much. 
Yeah, Kalis does a lot of interesting things with manipulating turn order. I, I've been meaning to actually try in, uh, the new version of Kalis and Kalis Magna Carta, which has been hailed by many free... I've been meaning to try Kalis Magna Carta for years, because Kalis, I think, is okay game, but a little bit rough around the edges. And, I, you know, a more streamlined one, I think, I'd appreciate a great deal. And one of the virtues of things like Kalis, like Kalis Magna Carta, is that it helps increase the player interaction because that's another big bugbear of a lot of worker placement games. Some of my favorite worker placement games have terrible worker uh, player interaction. We comment on this in the context of A Feast for Odin. It's there sometimes, often it's by accident, and it's usually not very satisfying. This is my hot take. I really hate the player interaction in Le Havre, or Le Havre, as uh, some people say it, as in Brett Favre. Most of the time, you're blocking in Le Havre is by accident. You just leave your worker there, everyone's got one worker, you leave it there, and then while you're off going doing other things and not moving your worker, everyone else is blocked. But it's not really by, by in my intention, it's just because you exogenously went and went, did other things. So I really, really like it when a worker placement game is find, find ways to be slightly more interactive. What are your... What is- I was going to say, with turn order things, a lot of places do, like uh, Outlive and... Uh- Champs in Midgard, all they do is make a suboptimal space that you can go, that you get some things, and oh, you also get the first player token. Right. Or Rurik was arguably kind of sort of worker placement-esque, Rurik Don of Kiev, and they really did a great job on the whole turn order issue, because yes, being first was kind of nice, but ultimately your ability to commit to actions was a little bit of like what I liked about Leonardo da Vinci. If you really wanted to commit, you could preempt somebody else, That's and right. that was an interesting trade-off there. Next thing I have, more things in a worker placement game, what you really need to do is have, uh, there has to be more things that you need or want to do that you can actually afford or accomplish. As in, there's, there's got to be more things that you need to do in your turn that you have workers to do and and resources to do it, right? You always have to need more. Which is which actually dovetails with one of the things that I really like about uh, a lot of worker placement games, and I think this is one of the reasons why they're so popular, is they tend to lead to little turns. There's something very pleasant, and we commented about this, especially in the context of a lot of Matt Gertz games. If there, if your turns are sufficiently substantial that you feel like they matter, but some, but also at the same time really, really brief, it can really help with the flow and keep everyone engaged in the game. And I think in your better worker placement games, you get to break up your turn into five or six or whatever, little chunks, little individual satisfying moves that are still substantial enough, but it still keeps everything moving at a good clip. Speaking of this sort of dovetails into that is the, the worker pullback, right? So some games have it. So once you put all your workers out or you don't, sometimes you don't have to put them all out. There's a, there's a mechanism in the game that says, okay, I'm pulling my workers back and that gives you yet another whole, you know, variety of actions. We just talked about wayfinders where the, the uh, one action is just to put a worker out. That's all you do. The next action, you pull them back get all your resources and then do all your actions. Like, so that part of the game is huge. Uh, Tolkien is the same sort of thing. You have Tolkien. Tolkien. Well, <laughs> sorry, no. It's just, I'm not Tolkien. I'm not correcting your pronunciation. It's just that you, you, you. It sounded like you were talking about the author. Gotcha. <laughs> um, T Z O L. Sorry yeah. for our American listeners. T Z O L K I N. Yeah. Uh, you have to sort of time it out. All these dials are turning, and you have to decide when you're going to pull your workers back. And Charterstone did the same same sort of thing, where you you got these nifty little abilities when you pulled your guys back. You got the, a little, you know, little Benny. Yes, and I agree that it can be very interesting. I liked how it worked in Sulkin. I liked how it worked in Wayfinders. I do not like how it worked in Charterstone. I actually have this on my list. Charterstone, you know, tried to do things a little bit more interesting. Tried to involve a little bit more player interaction because there was this issue of what happens when you show up when someone else is already there. But whether or not someone is there 
is not premised on that other player making decisions about how you might act. It's based purely, not randomly, but it ends up feeling chaotic and random because it's purely a function of the timetable of the other player managing their going out and coming back tempo, which has nothing to do with actual player interaction. So it always irked me a little they bit. They could a little bit, right? Because in that, I think, is you had your little side buddy that came with you, right, when you went, and then yes. somebody went there. So you could just sort of say, well, this is a very popular spot. I'm going to get in there first because someone's going to bump me out. So sometimes it could be. I'm not saying it never happened, but I'm just saying yes. it, it might have been there. It didn't pay off in quite a substantive way. And as I say, when I play a worker placement game, unless there's something really, really clever about the mechanisms, it had best to do something to address the player interaction. I like Feast for Odin in spite of the fact that the player interaction is so minimal, just because there's so much to do and I feel like I have all these great options and managing my board is so pleasant. I like Agricola despite the fact that there's an overwhelming emphasis on, on getting new people, because it at least that emphasis helps encourage a little bit more player interaction and, and, and direct conflict. All right. Other things that happen in worker placement games, the modification of action spaces. So there's where the actual action spaces get modified. So like in Caverna or Agricola, where resources start building up. So, you know, the actual action space is getting better or different. Or La Havre, same thing, build up. Or uh, I have key flower here. What's the point I want to make key flower with the actual action space changing oh it's because people are putting your their workers on your action spaces so it's you know changing whether or not you want to you know do that action or the trade-off of activating a neutral tile in the middle versus activating somebody else's action absolutely versus the the getting like tokens or awards that make the action spaces better for just you like in outlive you got uh, you know uh, equipment that said when you take that particular action you get this extra benefit of it there's other games like it. I just don't have any. Well, Agricola does both, actually, right? Because in Agricola, you get those occupations and those improvements that make certain actions better for you. But at the same time, you still have to worry about... The, the classic example of Agricola is staring down that wood space in the very, very early turns and staring down that reed space in the mid-game. The, I, I think the, the best strategy advice I ever got for Agricola was sometimes you just have to go and take two read. And sometimes that's all you're doing with your turn and you have to be okay with that. And yeah, you're right. There's this tension involved in managing suboptimal actions in your average worker placement game because you know that someone else is going to take it if you don't. And sometimes games leverage that well and sometimes they don't leverage that well. And I think Agricola does a good job of leveraging that well. All right. The next thing, my next favorite thing, the favorite thing. Workers with powers. So you have Outlive, where you had, you know, numbered workers, where they, you know, bully guys. You have Tia Tawakin, where, you know, the higher the die, the more powerful the action is. You have Dinosaur Island, where, you know, you have more powerful scientists, you know, do actions better. You have Yokohama, where you're putting more workers on spaces. A lot of other games do this, where where you have more workers on a space, the action is more powerful. And yet the one where... Workers arguably have the greatest amount of special powers. Argent the Consortium doesn't really do much for either of us. No. Right, because there's so many different kinds of workers and they all have a special power. The one that I like that that still does that, and again, this is one of those worker placement games that I think gets a lot of player interaction out of its formula, is Empire's Age of Discovery. Yeah, I have that as my number one game to talk about. What, what did you well, want I'm to say? Saying it, it's just that, is that you have all these different types of workers. You have captains and explorers and bishops and, and musketeers, and they all do something different. And, and 
And it's not as though they can only go to their own spaces. It's the fact that they go to all a variety of different spaces and they all interact with each other differently on those spaces. I really love Age of Empires 3. If you haven't had a chance to try it, definitely give it a run. It's still, and it's super old, but still lives up. I think it still plays well today. It's honestly, I think, my second or third favorite worker placement game because, again, when I'm looking for a worker placement game, I wanted to address some of the core problems of the genre. And yes, it's it, it's a game where you can still get more workers, but there's enough throughput that everybody who wants extra workers can go get those extra workers. There's not the same kind of fierce competition where someone's going to let, get left completely out in the cold. And you get excellent, excellent player interaction every turn because every round you're going to have two different area majority contests that you're placing your workers to compete in these area majority contests. On top of that, you're competing for spots to send your people off to the New World, who later will compete in area majority contests for victory points later on, because you're you're populating various areas. It is really, really good at leveraging all of worker placement strengths without really falling prey to, uh, to, to a lot of its weaknesses. I think it's aged very, very well. It got a really bad rap when it came out, because there were a whole bunch of component issues, which I think were overblown, and then a number of people dismissed it because it was a Euro game with minis. Remember back in the day when a Euro game with minis was regarded as suspect? Yes. That how the market has moved on. How it has changed. But I really think the newest version, Empire's Age of Discovery, it's it's a really, really good package, and it's a shame that it doesn't get more attention. I think it's really solid. So I only have one other point for mechanic. I have, there's a game called Keydom, apparently. Yes. It is recognized, I just read this somewhere, that it is recognized as one of the very first, or if not the first, worker placement game. Yep. Came out in 1998, which is very interesting, right? Because all the key flower, you know, key tower, key key games, they all do something fantastic with worker placement, and and it's just interesting that, that they are the ones that started it. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, and again, referring back to my uh, earlier in now in hindsight, extremely prescient comments about the intersection of worker placement and auction. It was basically a, a hybrid worker placement auction game where you were placing out all these bids that were kind of sort of also workers. Yeah, it, it, it that was more or less the genesis until it was distilled into into the worker placement that we we now know today. Can I just mention my favorite worker placement game again, so I can sure. so you can roll your eyes. One hundred percent. My favorite worker placement game is Tribune Primus Inter Paris by Karl Heinz Schmiel. It's going to be reprinted later on. And again, you can't get more workers. There's one there's one extra worker you can kind of get, but it doesn't really count. And there's such quality player interaction because you're competing over these resources, namely these cards, and then you use these cards in a set collection face-off with a whole bunch of other people. It is tense. It is awesome. It is really, really quick, and it packs a lot of tense decision-making, and it really leverages the strength of the of the format without really falling prey to a lot of the downsides. Plus, it's got some really satisfying auction elements involved and some pretty good Roman theming. So I still think the Tribune is is my favorite worker placement game of the lot. Speaking of extra workers, now that you said that, I think that's the mechanism I like the best because I was thinking of a bunch of games like it's uh, Front Star Front. What's the dice one? Frontier Star Frontiers? No, where is it? I have it. Is it somewhere. Star Frontiers? No. It was one of the first worker placement games to use dice as the workers. Dice as the workers, but my, what I'm trying to get at is the fact that, like you said, in Tribune, it's a it's a, like a common worker that everybody can use. They have that in Star Frontiers. They have that in Tribune. They have that in. In a, in a bunch of games where in uh, Marco Polo, they have the black dice that everyone can use. You know, it's it's shared as opposed to, you know, get, you get alien your, frontiers, alien frontiers. Anyway, that's all I have for thing. Are we just going to talk about games now? Haven't we been doing that? Well, I just mean like I have no actual mechanisms or, or see, I've been, or, 
he, see, here's I the see, thing. Yeah, here, right. here, I, I've been weaving what? those in. What? To... Say, what? All right. Feast for Odin. We talked about Feast for Odin already, but its little caveat is that there's different rows and it's number of workers you're going to pour into a thing. And it also blocks areas off. Fantastic game. And it introduces more workers at an organic fixed rate that is common to everybody. That I don't mind. There's no competition for the more workers. They just get introduced automatically by the system. So Caverna, love Caverna because it's the same sort of thing. You're building this cool farmland. You're building fences. You're putting out, you know, you're putting out livestock. You're, it definitely has the blocking of the action spaces as its core part of the game. Yeah, but less so than Agricola. That, that's one of the things that the reason why I prefer Agricola to Caverna is because the economy in Caverna is so loose. You can spend rubies for anything. There's a whole bunch of different ways to get where you want to go. Whereas in Agricola, it's focused on a razor's edge. And so the competition is increased as a result, thereby improving Look, the player. Impact. I can only, I'm agreeing with you, Mark. Okay. Caverna is more fun than Agricola. Stop, stop yelling. Uh, Dungeon Lords. I mentioned Dungeon Lords only because it's a super fun, silly game. Is Dungeon Lords a worker placement game? Yes. Okay. You have all these actions at the top. You're putting your workers out. Keyflower, we've already talked about. It's this fantastic game where you start bidding on tiles. And as soon as a certain... You have all these different meeples, different colors. And as soon as you start a color, you can only bid with that color. Same thing. Once you take that tile into your little village, other people can use it and you can use it. And you put meeples on it to use it. And as soon as you start a color on that tile, you put one on it to activate it. And then someone else can put two colors of that same thing to activate it again and three and four and so on. But it's it's like once you start a color, that's its thing. You start a color, you got to keep with that color. That's the thing. Yeah, the two things about Keyflower, this is, of course, treading ground that we've covered a number of times. But the way workers move between players, you're feeding them to somebody else because you're activating the building. And then it's their worker for next round. And the way the worker placement is interleaved with action with auctions at the same time, just delicious. Uh, Dinosaur Island, I already talked about it. You have uh, these workers that are going out. It's like three different phases. You're using them all over the place as different things. Great little game. I really feel that in Dinosaur... Dinosaur Island, to me, is an example of one of those games that just has worker placement just because. And it's just one one of these things, and it's just the way that that part of the game works. I agree with you 100%. Okay. You're, you're, you're building a dinosaur park, Mark. You're putting dinosaurs yes. in a park. Okay. Praetor <laughs> is a game that I'll, I, I just love. Uh, I think it might have been either my first or second dice worker placement game, which just you know, feeds in the fact that I just love dice worker placement games. The fact that you're you're increasing the value of these workers, they're getting better, and once they hit you know six, they have to retire and they go to this different thing, and they're either a penalty to you or you can use them to train your guys better or or whatever. Praetor does that as well. I've never played it before. Yeah, it's a great a great like Roman, you know, Greek. Not sure what. Praetor is Roman. Roman. It's a great, great dice worker placement. I should give it a try. Champions Midgard. Some people like it. Some people do. Some people don't. Some people don't. It's yet, it's, it's, it's much like Dinosaur Island. You get to play Vikings. You get to collect (laughs) these cool Viking dice and you go out and kill monsters. You roll these dice. You're looking for symbols. You try to kill monsters. You don't even get to kill cool monsters. It it, it does what it does. It, it, that is absolutely true. I would never contradict anyone who said that. It does what it does. It does what it does. That's all my games. You got another, you have a game, some games you want to talk about, Mark? No, I, I mentioned them all. All right, let's get to our game show then. Oh, the lightning round. All yes. right. Is it a worker placement or not? Sock it to me. Tale to walk in. It was no. another thing and we talked about it. It's in the list. It's it it 
it you have to move to get to the action spaces, mm-hmm. but you could call them workers, and you, and you're and you when you move when you move your dice to where uh, when you move the dice to where someone else is, you have to pay a penalty to go there. That is true. Look, a lot of these classifications are holistic, defined by extension, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. For me, the sense that I'm getting when I'm managing the actions in Teotihuacan, I don't get the sense that I do. Yeah, hey, remember, I, I, I don't know either way. I'm just presenting these things and so we can be yelled at and okay. made fun of. All right, sorry. All right, I, I'm, or, violating, I'm violating the spirit of a lightning round by elaborating. No, no, yeah. not at all. No, no, I'm not, I'm not knocking what you're saying. I'm just saying I'm not, I'm not presenting it as one way or the other. Sure. Orleans. Right, you have your own personal board. You're filling it up with 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 discs, so you can't take the action again. But it's your own personal board, no. But I know I'm saying it's also in in the worker placement category on 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 Board Game Geek. Yeah, that's fine. Robinson Crusoe is also there. No, I also I agree with that. It, it's a, like a co-op. Oh wait, maybe. Oh geez, no. I think maybe, maybe. And you're putting your tokens out. I don't and, remember. And you're long doing enough. those act while well, you're going out. Remember, you remember you're putting the, the your putting your tokens out saying we're going to go hunting right, here. Right, you have two and, actions and yeah. you kind of place them out. Yeah. It, you could think of it, but still, it's the fact that it's co-op and you're talking about beforehand and you're not really blocking, you're just sort of, eh. Yeah, but that just leans into, that so, just leans into the fact that worker placement by itself doesn't provide quality player interaction. So this next so. one, since you, you, you didn't like Orleans, you're probably not going to like this. This is another game. I like Orleans fine, couple... I just don't think it's a no, worker no, placement no, game. No, 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 I mean like the fact that I couldn't convince Neither is Hyperborea. no. So some of these I'm just going to give descriptions and then and then I'm going to and then I'll tell you what the game is before. <laughs> so you have a personal action board. So probably not. But you only have two actions. Okay. And you're taking. So you don't think it's ever. No. It was I, scythe. You know. You have yeah. Two. No. Definitely not. Actually, scythe is scythe to me. I've heard it described by people as a worker placement game, which I think is the classic example of perverting a definition past its usefulness. You said at the outset we have to be careful about taxonomies, they need to be informative and useful, not straitjackets or, at the other extreme, diluted to the point of uselessness and absurdity. I am 100... Just because you have this thing and that you can call it a worker, and then you put it somewhere, doesn't mean that it's a worker placement game. I'm with you 100%. Okay. 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 It, it was the fact that Orleans was in there, and I, I said, well, if Orleans is a worker placement game, so is Scythe. 100%. Maybe. I mean, if, if a banana is a truck, then maybe an orange is too. I, I don't know. Gugong, could your cards be workers? Because you're like sort of paying a penalty if you can't go to a space or you have if you suboptimally go to a space and you have to, you know, yeah, maybe get rid of a card or, you know, it wasn't on any of the list or anything, but I was just thinking about it. Yeah, I think that would be one of those instances where the components are driving conceptions. Again, like I said, in the Shadow of the Emperor is arguably more of a worker placement game than something like Scythe, despite the fact that Scythe has things called workers that you place places. It's fundamentally about the action drafting. And I agree with you that there's kind of sort of a worker placement vibe in the sense of playing your cards as workers in Gugong. I, I'm, I'm, I'm more sympathetic to Gugong being called a worker placement game, certainly than Orléans, certainly than that. They say Lords of Hellas is a worker placement game. What? Right. Well, you have your. Per- it's a, it goes down on this personal board. You have your personal board, and you're right. filling up spaces, and you can't retake those actions. So Just because you're blocking yourself I, because you took look, an action before a reset. I'm, no, that, I'm that, on that, your that doesn't that doesn't do it for me. So Kemet, I also have Kemet on here. Same thing. The personal only board. sense, actually, let me put it this way: if you wanted to find a worker placement element in Lords of Hellas, it's in the priests. There are these action spaces available for the to pray at various monuments. There are two spots available. You send your priests out there. That is kind of sort of arguably within striking distance of maybe sometimes if it's rainy on a Tuesday, something like a worker placement game. Gotcha. One was interesting. You're talking about a game that 
it's sort of worker placement, but it's sort of an auction game. Every, everything do- I say Dogs is of very... War. Yes, Dogs of War is totally a worker placement game. Is it? Or is oh it, yeah, one hundred percent. Or is it not an auction game? Are you not trying to outbid? It's both. You're using your workers to uh, to leverage your bids. You can only make a bid in the track where you're doing the seesaw battle by placing one of your workers. But aren't they only used to nominate no, the, how many you have there? No, because in, in Dogs of War, which again is one of my favorite worker placement games, we love Dogs of War here on this podcast, Paul Mori is the man, you are involved in a seesaw battle back and forth, and you can only leverage troops there. The quality of the troop is completely independent from the worker that you place there. The, placing the worker will get you some benefit. And again, sometimes you're putting the worker there just for the benefit, not so much to commit the troop. So the fact that there's this extra layer on top of things, I don't think doesn't vitiate the fact that it's a worker placement game. It just means that there's more going on and there's more subtlety. And you might go to a certain action space for one of several different competing reasons. All right. Thank you for reminding me. I completely forgot about Dogs of War. Last two. You can place, you have three workers that you can place, sorry, two workers you can place a turn. Okay. Out of this, you have this deck of workers. You're going to draw, you're going to draw a hand of three, three workers and you're going to place two a turn and you're going to place them on this map and space is limited. You're going to place the cards on, on the you're map? Gonna or place, you're going to place the, their tokens that you draw. Are you talking about Han? I'm just saying, would you <laughs> define that as a worker placement? I think I need to know more. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't think with that, to, you're, you're... I, I was trying to. I was trying to pass off Nirishima Hex as, as, a, <laughs> as a worker placement game. No, no, All right. definitely not. All right, last one. <laughs> so I you, can tell from the look on your face that you were just trying to troll me. Was... All right. You have multiple options. All right. All right. Once you take it, no one else can. Okay. It takes you a while to complete it. And then once you once you're done, it returns so other people can take it. And if you hold it for too long, there's a penalty. Huh. Maybe. No, Mark, you just went to the library. (laughs) (laughs) Respect. (laughs) All right. That's all I've got, Mark. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker by his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thank you again very, very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.